The other fact that is stated here is that the size of the stimulus will not affect the size of the action potential, meaning it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if the stimulus is electricity of some sort or if some chemical, if it's one mole or two moles of some chemical, the action potential will have the same size, the same shape. It will not, it will not go over plus 30 millivolts. Always the action potential will be the same, whatever stimulus is affecting the neuron. And the size of the stimulus will not affect action potential. That's another statement here. Meaning that it doesn't matter that you are stimulating, like, again, with a lot of chemicals for a long time. It doesn't matter if the action potential will last longer in terms of milliseconds, the x-axis. It will always be the same. The same action potential, the same shape. Always it starts at minus 55, goes to plus 30, goes down to minus 85, and then returns. Always be the same. That's what we call all or none law. Now, now we may think or wonder what happens, how come we are able to determine if some object is hotter than others or if I touch something uh, I can feel that it's hot I and mean, after some time it gets uh, cold. There are different changes that is called the coating for a stimulus. How this happens? If the stimulus is stronger, what happens in terms of action potentials is the action potentials will happen more frequently. But the, again, the size of the action potential will not change. And the duration will not change. What happens is there are more frequent action potentials. Or the stronger stimulus may also activate more neurons in a nerve. So there's another way. Sometimes I feel pain, like I touch something and I feel pain, but then I feel more pain. It's not because more neurons are being activated. The action potentials are not changing. And that um, activation of more neurons in a nerve, that's called recruitment. More neurons are being, more axons are being recruited. This diagram is showing an example um, of three different types of a stimulus, a different, a different strength. In the first stimulus, the minus 70 millivolts will stay in minus 70 millivolts, it will not change, meaning that the member of the neuron will be stimulated, yes. It will change probably from minus 70 to minus 60, minus, but it won't reach minus 55. That's why all this part, this flat line. There's no action potentials generated, even though the neuron is stimulated, but the stimulus is so mild that it will not trigger an action potential. If, in the second stimulus, if it's stronger, it's strong enough to make the neuron uh, produce action potentials. In this case, the stimulus has a different duration, a determined duration, and four action potentials are triggered. But in the third case, if the stimulus lasts, uh, is stronger, 
then we see many more action potentials produced. But all of them have the same shape, it's the same height, and it will have the same events. That's uh, what we call the all or none law and the coding for the intensity of the stimulus. Another thing that we explain by seeing this action potential shape in different areas is what we call the refractory periods. The refractory periods are areas or moments during the action potential where if a neuron is stimulated, it may be stimulated again or may not. It depends on what part of the, uh, of the of the moment of the action potential. And in this curve, we see the action potential and starting from minus 70, goes to minus 65, then goes all the way out to plus 30, and then goes back to memory potential, minus 70 again. This moment is called absolute refractory period. But then, when the membrane, the neuron, is hyperpolarizing before it returns to resting membrane potential, that moment is called relative refractory period. This means that if another stimulus comes, another stimulus comes and touches the neuron, if that stimulus happens during this moment, that neuron is not able to be stimulated. That's what we call refractory period. It cannot be stimulated at all. It doesn't matter how strong the stimulus is. If it happens at this moment, during the first millisecond, the neuron will not get stimulated again. But if that stimulus comes during the moment of relative refractory period, this neuron may be stimulated again. What is necessary is that that stimulus be strong enough to go from this point, which is minus 85, all the way up to minus 55, and it can be stimulated, but not during this moment. This is called absolute refractory period. And that happens because during this time, the sodium channels are completely, I mean, they're not active. They're working already. You cannot stimulate them again to do more work that they are doing at that moment. And during the second, the, the relative refractory period, I mean, the sodium channels, they can be stimulated. Maybe harder because the voltage is lower, it's minus 85. It requires a stronger stimulus, but it is possible. That's another thing that we explain from the action potential curve. And we see this sometimes in cases of um, um, seizures. You know, seizures, convulsions are triggering of action potentials in some part of the nervous system. There's a group of neurons, let's say, in the temporal lobe that start producing, making a lot of action potentials and start stimulating other neurons. And then activating the muscles, and we see contraction of the muscles in, in the seizure. But those stimulus come one after another very quick. And sometimes they stimulate neurons in relative refractory period. And that's, that's why those neurons are continuously and so dramatically being stimulated that make the muscles uh, contract in a very strong way.
Once the action potential is made, it has to travel. It has to travel along the axon. And that's why uh, we focus our attention on the axons now, the properties of the axons, the cable properties. In this graph, what we see is the representation of an axon, just the membrane, just the cell membrane. And what would happen if we grab a microelectrode and inject positive charges inside? If we inject positive charges, maybe solving molecules, inject that, what we will see is a depolarization because we're injecting sodium, potassium charges, I mean, positive charges inside the cell. Now we see depolarization of the membrane, not strong enough to reach the threshold, but we are changing the polarity of the membrane. But then what happens along the time, these positive charges, these positive charges will be removed from inside by the different channels, by the pumps, because that axon has to be in balance and equilibrium all the time, minus 70 millivolts. And along the length of this axon, little by little and a long time, we see the potential fading until going back to resting membrane potential. This is what happens in a regular cable. Imagine a electric cable carrying electricity or a telephone line and the reason why all these wires are protected by a plastic uh, insulator material or rubber or whatever the reason is the same I mean if you have a telephone line a wire that is peeled well, you will lose signal or in case of electricity electricity will contact with other things around and it will fade that's the reason why it's protected. That's the reason of the myelin, one of the reasons of the myelin, to insulate properly the axons so the charges will not fade in this way. So quick, otherwise it will be impossible for the neurons to conduct electricity. Okay, so the action potential, and now we're going to talk about how the action potential travels along the membrane. Um, when action potential happens at some point in a neuron, like in the axon hillock, that's the place where the action potential starts, well, the voltage-gated sodium channels will open. They will start opening like in a wave because this segment of the membrane is being depolarized and then that is stimulating the next segment of the membrane and the voltage of that part will change and the channels will open. So one side stimulates the next segment and the next segment and the next segment and the action potential starts traveling like in a wave. It's exactly the same thing we see in the, in the stadium sometimes when the people do this in the game like they stand up like this and they sit and you see the wave going side to side, exactly the same thing. Each segment of the membrane starts getting depolarized 
and an action potential happens in every segment of the membrane. And that's what we see in this diagram, how the action potential begins and the membrane depolarizes, it starts to get in depolarized from negative inside, turns to positive inside, the sodium starts getting in, and then the potassium leaves and returns. The blue is the depolarization wave. Initially it's here and then it travels in the middle and now it's in the other part of the axon. And the parts that are left behind, they get repolarized. That's why we see how the action potential travels along the membrane. Now let's see the relation of the myelin here, how the myelin uh, um, impacts all this process. There are two types of axons. Some axons are myelinated, they have myelin around, and some axons are unmyelinated or poorly myelinated. So what happens if the axon is unmyelinated or poorly myelinated? the action potentials will start traveling from segment to segment, like we were saying. One segment stimulates the next segment, the next segment, and so. Many action potentials will be generated segment by segment, making the conduction rate slow. But the action potential, the amplitude, the shape is all the same. That, that won't change. And that is represented in this diagram how the action potential propagates in an unmyelinated neuron. But what happens in a myelinated axon? It is different. Myelin provides insulation. And that insulation will improve the speed of conduction. Thanks to the nose of Renvier, those gaps, those gaps in between the myelin packs. Why? Because the active exchange of sodium, which is in other terms, the, the, the events of the action potential, will happen at those nodes, in those areas where the membrane is exposed to the environment, to the interstitial space or fluid, that's where the sodium will be, will be coming in and potassium out. And the action potentials kind of leap from node to node. We call this saltatory conduction. It's like the action potentials were jumping from one node of Renvier to the other. That's what is represented in this diagram, sodium being exchanged in the gap, node of Renvier. The next action potential will happen in the next node of Renvier, and so. So the membrane will not get depolarized segment by segment by segment by segment. It will get depolarized in every node of Renvier, making this action potential kind of jump from node to node. And it is actually that the action potential does not jump is the action potential is generated in those gaps only. And that makes the speed of conduction much faster. It's the same idea of uh, passing an object. If I want this pen to reach 
that side of the room, I have two options, and I can pass it one by one, pass it hand by hand, and reaches there, or I just throw it. With much faster. Same idea with the action potentials in unmyelinated axons and myelinated axons. Now, there are different parts, different um, organs, targets in our body that need different type of speed of conduction. An example is two types of muscles. If you compare skeletal muscle with smooth muscle, skeletal muscle contracts very quick, strong. You can determine that. It's voluntary. If you contract some muscle very quick and strong, Smooth muscle, like we have in the wall of the small intestine, it has to contract slower. If you ever seen a video of a surgery or the study of small intestine, the contraction of the small intestine called peristalsis, it happens like very slow and segment by segment, kind of like a worm. It will not happen like the skeletal muscle. And one explanation is because nerves that connect the skeletal muscle, they are myelinated. The speed of conduction is very fast. Smooth muscle, they are poorly myelinated. And they conduct the impulses slower. We don't contract the smooth muscle of intestine like the skeletal muscle. That will be catastrophic and painful. So that's why there are different types of axons with different features in terms of myelin. So the myelin and other factors affect the conduction speed, and this is listed in this slide. The action potential speed, the conduction speed is increased by myelination first. Myelination, saltatory conduction happens in myelinated axons. But the other thing is increased diameter of the neuron, or the axon. If the axon is thicker, bigger, it will be faster. In thick myelinated neurons, the speed is 100 meters per second. And in a thin, unmyelinated axon, the speed is one meter per second. It's a hundred times faster in thick myelinated axons. Questions to this point? Now the neurons make the action potentials and the purpose is to send the signal. And that signal may, may perhaps may go from the brain down the muscles of the leg. For that pathway to happen, there are not only one neuron, there are usually two or three neurons at least. So there must be a communication, first neuron, second neuron, third neuron, and perhaps neuron to muscle. Those connections between neuron to neuron or neuron to muscle are called synapses. Synapse. And the synapse may be, may happen in different ways, as we see here, may be axodendritic if it's neuron to neuron from an axon to the dendrite of another neuron. 
may be axosomatic from the axon to the body of the another neuron, or even axoaxonic. It depends where the connection happens. That's how we describe those synapses. In central nervous system, they will be neuron to neuron, but in peripheral nervous system, the next cell may not be a neuron, may be a muscle or a gland. If it's a muscle, we call that connection neuromuscular junction. So that communication between neurons or between neuron and muscle may be mainly of two types. Electrical synapse, like we see here. We see this in neurons, some parts of the brain, uh, with glial cells. In the cardiac muscle, we see this type of electrical synapses. This is just what we previously called gap junctions. Those channels or pores that are established by these proteins in the memory called connexons, like we see in this diagram. That diagram, there, these two cells are connected to each other practically by means of these connections, and there's a free exchange of ions through these pores or connections. That is considered electrical synapses. But mostly what we see in the nervous system are chemical synapses. And the chemical synapses involves the presence of a chemical substance. And that chemical substance is called neurotransmitter. Briefly, how these chemical synapse, synapses work. We've talked about action potentials. The action potentials spread, travel along the membrane, down the axon. And we see here action potentials reach the axon terminals, the terminal part of an axon. This axon is connected to a second neuron, which is called postsynaptic cell. This is called presynaptic cell, postsynaptic cell. The action potential coming down, what's going to happen here? What happens in second step is that channels for calcium, which are also voltage-gated, if this potential of the membrane changes, it will activate calcium channels here. Calcium channels are activated, calcium comes in. Again, just by concentration, difference in the concentration. When this calcium enters, this calcium triggers mechanisms here, that are proteins, will activate exocytosis. It will favor or stimulate exocytosis or vesicles containing chemicals called neurotransmitters. And these vesicles containing neurotransmitters will be released at this point of the membrane. Now these neurotransmitters, they are chemicals that will stimulate the postsynaptic neuron. That's why we call them chemical synapses. And this is the time to talk about graded potentials. Previously, we mentioned that for an action potential to happen, the, uh, 
the memory potential has to reach threshold, which is minus 55. How the neuron gets to that point? Well, the neuron gets stimulated in different ways. And those initial stimulus are small amounts or trigger small amounts of electricity or make changes that are not so big in the membrane called graded potentials. How this happens? Well, there are sodium channels opening or potassium uh, channels opening which respond quickly to minor stimulus. And if they are not too strong, they will not reach threshold. That's why they're called graded potentials. Little by little, they can be added to each other and reach the threshold. But if not, they will just fade. If this potential happens and it's a positive one, we call it excitatory because it's a graded depolarization. Excitatory postsynaptic potential or EPSP. And now we are adding this postsynaptic word here, excitatory postsynaptic, because these greater potentials are usually happening in the postsynaptic cell. And we see in this previous diagram, the second cell here, the postsynaptic cell, is being stimulated by this neurotransmitter. So this neurotransmitter is stimulating this neuron or cell, and this cell will start having graded potentials. which are excitatory if they depolarize. There may be other type of graded potential, which is a graded hyperpolarization, and it's called inhibitory postsynaptic potential, or IPSP. In the graph, EPSP, it's a positive change of the potential. IPSP is a negative change of the memory potential. Now here, if you look here, you see one stimulus making one EPSP, and another stimulus is catching up here and making this potential stronger to the point of reaching the threshold. And if it reaches the threshold, then we have an action potential. And an action potential is all or none. It will start traveling no matter what. You start an action potential, that action potential will start spreading along the, the axle. But the greater potential is not. The greater potential is fade. It's not reaching the threshold. This is what happens in the postsynaptic cell. All these neurotransmitters are being released or either stimulate or inhibit. How? There are different types of neurotransmitters. Some neurotransmitters may be excitatory. Some neurotransmitters may be inhibitory. And that's how they, they make that effect, by stimulating EPSPs or IPSPs. This sequence is um, what happens, and we've been talking about this what happens in the presynaptic neuron and postsynaptic neuron when the neuron is stimulated. Going step by step, the action potentials in the first neuron, presynaptic neuron starts traveling down 
um, opening calcium channels. Calcium channels stimulate release of the neurotransmitter. If it's excitatory neurotransmitter, this is going to open channels in the postsynaptic neuron. In the postsynaptic neuron, there are channels which are chemically gated. They are not voltage gated, they are chemically gated, meaning that they will open when the neurotransmitter, which is a chemical, binds this protein or channel. That's what we call ligand. The neurotransmitter comes and binds these chemically gated channels, the channels will open. If they open, sodium will rush in, making an EPSP. If it's small, mild, it will fade. But if it's strong enough, it will stimulate voltage-gated sodium channels, and that's when the action potential starts. If it's a small, it will fade. If it's strong enough, it will change the membrane potential to threshold, minus 55, and that is when the voltage-gated sodium channels will open, followed by the potassium channels, action potential. And now the postsynaptic neuron will pass that action potential in. Keep going. Well, the action potential will start spreading, perhaps to another neuron, perhaps to the muscle. And that's the way that the signal keeps traveling down. Now those neurotransmitters, let's see some of these neurotransmitters. One of the main neurotransmitters um, is acetylcholine. There are different types of neurotransmitters, a long list, and they're classified in different ways. Uh, the acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter which action is to bind a channel, an ion channel. In some cases, the acetylcholine may be excitatory. In some cases, may act as inhibitory. It depends. It depends on the organ. Depends on the target. And what makes the difference? The difference is made by the receptor. In this graph, we see the representation of a plasma membrane with these integral proteins. And these proteins are actually the channels. They have a site here. These proteins are receptors, channels, at the same time. They have a site for the acetylcholine. And when they bind here, this channel will open. As we see here, the sequence comes, binds, sodium rushes in. Now we say that sometimes acetylcholine is excitatory, sometimes inhibitory, it depends on the organ, depends on the type of receptor 
that the organ has. There are two types of receptors for acetylcholine. One type is called nicotinic, and the second type is called muscarinic. Where do we find them? The nicotinic acetylcholine receptors are found in skeletal muscle cells, in autonomic nervous system, and in some other parts of the brain in the central nervous system. Muscarinic are found in a smooth muscle, cardiac muscle, glands, and mostly organs controlled by autonomic nervous system. For the skeletal muscle, the nicotinic receptors, they stimulate, they are stimulatory. And in muscarinic, they are usually inhibitors. Now, all this knowledge about uh, neurotransmitters, different types of receptors that some neurons and organs have, uh, has led to the development of medications, chemicals that will interact with these mechanisms, like some drugs are called agonists because they can stimulate a receptor. There are some medications that are made very similar to the original molecule and they fit into the receptor. Like, this is the way that they discover and, and, and describe this type of receptors. Uh, nicotine binds to nicotinic receptors for acetylcholine. And muscarine is another substance that will fit into this type of receptors. And they just stay with those names. Uh, antagonists are drugs that will inhibit that receptor or those receptors. And examples are here, like atropine is an antagonist, inhibits the muscarinic receptors. And actually they are used to control vital function sometimes in, um, uh, in cases of uh, bradycardia, which is when the heart is beating uh, the lower frequency, like 50 or 40 times per minute, we give atropine, we block the muscarinic receptors and the heart rate starts increasing. Or curare, which is an antagonist of nicotinic receptors, if the curare binds the nicotinic receptors of the skeletal muscle, the skeletal muscles cannot be stimulated. And there is relaxation of the muscles. Now the curare is a poison. You know, it's used in um, um, different parts, especially for hunting, and the preys uh, get paralyzed. That's how it works. But what we actually use are medications like these. Vecuronium. And you can recognize the root of the word curare there, vecuronium, because it's a, it derives, it's made from curare. And it's, of course, better controlled. And this medication is used in general anesthesia. In general anesthesia, they are summarizing two steps, two phases. The first phase is you inject a sedative and the patient starts with a full sleep. 
That's when they tell you, start counting from 10, 10, 9, 8, 6, 7. When you're in 6, you're, you're just sleeping. But then second is muscle relaxation. They inject this, vecuronium. And all your muscles of your body will get paralyzed. Even your respiratory muscles, you stop breathing. And then is when they the third step is they connect you to a ventilator. To the tube and start ventilating. The machine will breathe for you. And the next step will be to inject the anesthetic once you are completely out. And we use that for muscle relaxation. It's the same principle of the curare, to relax all the muscles. And it's necessary for surgery to relax the muscles on the abdominal wall so we can manipulate better. The respiratory muscles must be well controlled. Um, but all these all this, uh, medications are used based on this knowledge. Now, more to the molecular level, these uh, neurotransmitters can open an ion channel in two ways. Directly by binding to the channel, to the ion channel, or by stimulating a chain of reaction related with the G proteins. The G proteins we mentioned briefly last time, there is a sequence of reactions that this chemical comes, binds the receptor and it triggers this reaction of G proteins that usually involves two or more proteins of the membrane. This is how the nicotinic receptors work. We have a number one, the channel is closed, but the green neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, comes, binds to the channel, which has an active site for that acetylcholine, and that opens the, 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 the channel. It opens the channel, and the sodium will come in. And this is how the muscarinic receptors work. A little different. This is mediated by G proteins. The acetylcholine comes, binds to the receptor, which is not a channel. It's a protein that contains the system of G proteins here. When this system of G proteins, is, we described briefly that they dissociate and some of the units bind to a different protein, a membrane protein, which in this case is a channel and is usually a potassium channel. So when this G protein stimulates this channel, this channel will open and will allow potassium to come out. When the potassium comes out, the cell turns more negative, harder to stimulate, and that's why the muscarinic are mostly inhibitory. Now the acetylcholine, the way it works, involves different steps. And one of the steps is what happens with acetylcholine once it's been used, once it's already bound to the receptor and it's mediating its action, opening channels and so. Well that acetylcholine molecule has to be removed. Has to be removed and broken down. And it's actually broken down by this enzyme called acetylcholinesterase. It inactivates acetylcholine after it binds to receptor, 
and by hydrolysis, it will break down the acetylcholine into choline and acetate. And what happens to that? It is taken back. You see it here? Acetylcholine binding the receptors, but then the next step, this is taken back and broken down into the components acetate and choline and then taken back to the presynaptic axon. It will be reused. It will be taken back to the cytoplasm by the axon transport mechanisms. More acetylcholine will come down. And that's um, how the acetylcholinesterase work in all this process. And it makes sense because otherwise the acetylcholine will continuously be stimulating there. It has to be removed. If I want to move a muscle, I just want to move it for some seconds, and then it stops. How it stops? Acetylcholine has to be removed. Otherwise, I will just be doing this all the time. It never stops. Now, in the peripheral nervous system, this connection is not neuron to neuron, it's neuron to muscle. And the connections are called neuromuscular junctions. And a specific area where these channels are present and the acetylcholine is released is called the motor and plate. And that's where all this happens. But now between the neuron and the muscular cell. And this is another place. Well, this is a, an example of what we mentioned, the curare. Because this is a way to interact with this neuromuscular uh, junction or transmission. The curare, what it does is to block acetylcholine receptors. Curare is an antagonist of acetylcholine. It binds acetylcholine receptors occupy those sites so the acetylcholine has no place to act. And it leads to paralysis because all those receptors are blocked. But it's used as a muscle relaxant under well-controlled conditions. Now, there are medications also, just mentioned, directed towards the acetylcholinesterase. Because if I block the acetylcholinesterase, then the acetylcholine will not be removed from the receptor and will keep working. Other type of neurotransmitters are called monoamines. And monoamines are usually these catecholamines like dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine, serotonin, and histamine. These are very important neurotransmitters. They mediate different actions uh, in the peripheral, autonomic nervous system, and central nervous system. And they belong to the same family. That's what we call monoamines. 
How they work? Very similar. All these chemical synapses are very similar. And the only thing that changes are the compounds, the enzymes, the receptors, and the type of channel that they activate. Here we see the sequence. The monoamines are made and stored in the synaptic vesicles. Now, this is a family of uh, neurotransmitters because the dopamine may turn into norepinephrine, the norepinephrine into epinephrine. But that depends on what type of neuron uh, have those neurotransmitters. And we see the vesicles being released. The neurotransmitter, in this case, norepinephrine, is released, stimulating the receptors and the postsynaptic cells. And there's a reuptake of most of the neurotransmitters. And this neurotransmitter is processed or broken down by the MAO, the MAO, as the enzyme in this case, that allows the a retake of these molecules of neurotransmitter. These, these, these monoamines, these monoamines, they use the second messenger system, like G-proteins. As you see, the norepinephrine here is connected to the receptor, binding to the receptor, triggering the G-proteins, and this involves a different messenger, the second messenger, cyclic AMP. This cyclic AMP will finally stimulate the ion channel. So this is a little bit more complex and different. Acetylcholine is more straightforward. Um, the case of the monoamines involves a second messenger system. Serotonin is another one. Serotonin is found in different areas of the brain, like the, uh, the brain stem. There are some areas in the brain stem impl implicated in the control of mood, behavior, appetite, uh, and uh, uh, cerebral circulation. The agonists, there are agonists for these drugs, like uh, LSD is considered an agonist. And the reuptake enzymes the reuptake enzymes for this serotonin, like the MAO, they are the ones that are, are targeted by some medications like Prozac. Prozac is used to treat depression, and it works there in that type of uh, synapsis mediated by serotonin. Well, serotonin, what it does is, in case of um, um, the mood, if there's more serotonin, that means that you will be, okay, if you're deficient in serotonin for some reason, then your mood tends to go into depression. And uh, reuptake inhibitors, like Prozac, what it does is target that enzyme that recycles the serotonin, so the serotonin will stay there for longer and stimulate more and prevent that you go into deep moments of depression. This is the, the chemistry of the, this medication. Um, but there are more factors here. It depends on the type of, of mood problem. It's not so simple as just prescribing a medication sometimes. It involves other things. But this is the way that this medication works with the serotonin. It allows the serotonin to stay for, more, for longer in the synapses. Dopamine is another important neurotransmitter. Midbrain is where this dopamine is, mostly. 
and in two areas. In an area called nigrostriatal dopamine system, which is involved in motor control, and the mesolimbic system, which is related to emotional reward. And that's where we find dopamine in the central nervous system. The nigrostriatal dopamine system involved uh, areas in the brainstem called the substantia nigra and some neurons in an area called corpus striatum. We'll see more of these areas when we get to the functional anatomy of the brain. But just to mention, these two areas, they are important in the control and initiation of movement. Like an example with Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease, you know, is a disease where there's uncontrolled movements. You cannot control the movement. It's persistently shaking like the hands. Well, it seems like everyone, every one of us, have those movements that are involuntary. But these areas of the brain are the ones that inhibit those unwanted movements. Well, people that have problems like Parkinson's, they have no control of them. In one of the places is the substantia nigra that is dark because it contains neurons with dopamine. Someone with Parkinson's, we have this area, these areas completely pale because the neurons don't have enough dopamine, causing the problem of uncontrolled movements. And the other area that we mentioned related with dopamine was the mesolimbic dopamine system. This system is involved in emotional reward and it's associated with addictive behaviors like addiction to some drugs. Schizophrenia is also associated with excessive amount of dopamine in this system. Another fact here, the drugs made to treat schizophrenia, they are dopamine antagonists to counteract the action of the excessive dopamine. Yeah. Is this the reason why some schizophrenic people have acts of hallucination? Not directly related with the neurotransmitter. Very hard to explain the, 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 the little the ultimate cause there. But the action of the excessive amount of dopamine at different levels of the brain is what it makes these symptoms uh, be evident, like hallucinations, there's excessive amount of dopamine in some parts of the temporal lobe, and it makes the person hear voices or see things that are not real. And there are other neurotransmitters. As I said before, there's a long list of neurotransmitters. Uh, I just mentioned the, the ones that are uh, found in more amount and important uh, under clinical aspect. There are amino acids like glutamate, glycine, which are also found as neurotransmitters in some parts of the brain, uh, like the cerebral cortex, the glutamate is found and it's responsible for about 80% of the synapses there in the cerebral cortex that make EPSPs, 
Glycine, it is found in the spinal cord in the regulation of skeletal muscle movements. So some interneurons in the spinal cord that use glycine as a neurotransmitter. These are amino acids. GABA, that stands for gamma aminobutyric acid, is also very common in the brain. And one third of the neurons of the brain seem to use this neurotransmitter. It is involved in motor control also. There's a lot of interneurons in the brain, and some of them use this neurotransmitter. An opioid, endogenous opioids. We have molecules that um, work as opioids, internal or endogenous. There are receptors for opioid substances in our body, and they seem to control different actions like pain relief. It's well known that someone is uh, under a very stressful situation, but dramatically and terribly stressful situation. Uh, there are many stories about this in, uh, in cases about people having important lesions or injuries in the, like in the war scenarios, and, and they don't feel the pain. They don't feel the pain because these substances are released in those circumstances and block, partially, of course, the pain, allowing them to do some sometimes amazing things. And they are like are named as beta-endorphins, dynorphins, encephalins. There are different ways. Usually the, the, those sensations that are related with euphoria are related with the release of these endogenous opioids, apparently. Like those sensations that we have after exercising and being very, very satisfied with our actions and seems to be related with the release of these um, neurotransmitters. Now, to complete this part, uh, a couple of ideas of how the neurons actually work. We've been mentioning interneurons, but I said interneurons are related to each other and they are part of complex networks of neurons. And that brings the concept of neural pathways. Mainly, the neurons are organized in these ways, or divergent or convergent. Divergent, starting with one neuron and then passing to two and to two to four and so on, spreading the signals in that way. And convergent in the other direction. Many neurons, all the signals converge into a main pathway, one or few neurons. And the way that the neurons are stimulated and how the EPSPs and IPSPs uh, bring to or are brought to importance here is the processes or events called summation, which may be a spatial summation or temporal summation. How this, uh, what it means. Spatial summation is a convergence of signals into a single postsynaptic neuron as we see in this diagram. We have three axons connecting to this neuron. And if these three neurons are bringing EPSPs, 
the three PSPs are added to each other and they start making higher intensity PSPs perhaps to reach the threshold and trigger a nitrogen potential. Or it may be that one of these neurons has an IPSP made and it will block or inhibit the second neuron. And temporal summation is the successive waves, one after another, that it starts rising like in a ladder, how we see here, one behind another, so quick that we'll end up in, the, in reaching the threshold and starting the action potential. In either way, summation is what happens. Summation that from two neurons, three neurons, and if we see actually how the neurons are connected to each other, we see a neuron receiving thousands of connections from other neurons. And how this neuron makes an action potential? Summon, adding all the EPSPs and IPSPs that come to that neuron. And then we have, or we don't have an action potential. Plasticity. If we use a pathway Repeatedly, we can strengthen or reduce the transmission of that pathway. This is called neuroplasticity, long-term potentiation. And it's used as a theory in many, many fields, like especially in um, uh, training of new skills or change of some habits. Um, and, and is explained on neuroplasticity. We say we are used to wake up at 10 a.m. every day, and uh, we say it's impossible for me to wake up early because I feel sick. And I say, well, it's not impossible. It is possible. You have to start waking up five minutes early every day, 9.55, 9.45, 9.30, until perhaps after six months you're waking up 6 a.m. every day. How can that happen? Little by little, by changing strengthen some pathways of your neurons. And that is applied to many other fields, and retraining or reacquisition of some skills, especially related with habits. And that has to do with learning and memorials, long-term potentiation, how we remember things by just reading once, twice, or how we play a musical instrument. Just practice, learn the theory, and start practicing, do it, and do it, and redo it, and do it many times, and at the end, you do it. All right. Second break.